Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. Once again, this is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and we have a fabulous guest today. To tell you what I think about this man, and I've said it several times, our guest is Dr. Jim Doty from Chapman University. Uh, he took a sleepy Chapman College into a today vibrant Chapman University. He is the most successful person I know, and that's pretty high praise from, from your host here. And also, uh, he is, we will tell it like it is, uh, he is Milton Friedman economics trained. Uh, he is there to talk about issues directly. And in fact, uh, he is, to put this into a little more perspective, he is my first repeat guest here on All Rise. So, Jim Doty, thank you. I, I hope people have previously heard your, your contributions here. But uh, Jim, welcome and thanks again for returning to be our guest on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Well, thank you, Jim, for your very kind and gracious and overly generous words. And it's uh, an honor and privilege to be uh, a twofer uh, the second time on your show. I really enjoy uh, our discussions. Well, we're going to double your, your appearance fees for this, too, you understand. <laughs> and by the way, as, as you'll remember, your first broadcast was on August 16 of 2019, uh, and we just we ran out of time because we were talking about so many interesting and, and vibrant issues. Uh, today, and I was trying, I, I said earlier, to talk you into running for president of the United States of America as a libertarian. Uh, I understand that there are difficulties with that, but uh, uh, that is, just shows the Steam that I believe that you are in, but but uh, tell me what you have a, a platform right now. Of course, you, you have many platforms, but as my repeat guest, uh, what is it that you want to talk about? What do you think is the most important thing that you and we can say to we the people out there? Well, I think especially to young people, Jim, who are increasingly drawn to uh, socialistic. Uh, uh, philosophy, uh, uh, the feeling that uh, uh, the government can remove uh, student debt and that will serve their interests and serve this nation's interests. Other socialistic values uh, relating to uh, redistributing income in a forceful way from higher income to lower income uh, individuals. Uh, the most important thing, I think, in terms of our dialogue is, that we can have is that uh, these threats against uh, free markets, free enterprise, uh, will, will reduce and uh, threaten individual liberty and freedom. I think that Ian Rand was a really wonderful writer. Uh, and But she did us dirt, Jim, from my standpoint, because she's well known for that phrase, greed is good. And, and the libertarian movement has been kind of labeled with, oh, survival of the fittest, uh, uncaring, no government regulation at all, uh, that sort of thing, even free drugs. But, but greed is good. What Ian Rand meant to say is, if you act in your own economic self-interest, 
in effect, be greedy in, in that sense, but you act in your own economic self-interest, we will all thrive because, in effect, the way I describe it is that wonderful essay, I Pencil, which talks about people around the world acting in their own economic self-interest, don't even know each other, uh, but some people bring in the, the lumber for pencils. Some people bring in the graphite, the erasers, the, the little metal cap, uh, the lighthouse keeper that assists. They all act in their own economic self-interest. This works. This results in quality pencils at a vi- at a viable price. Uh, so to that degree, greed is good. Uh, is that what you're kind of going along with as well? Yeah, you can go back to the basic uh, you know, uh, Bible of free market uh, capitalism, and that is uh, Wealth of Nations and, and uh, Adam Smith's uh, uh, many statements that mirror what you just said, Jim, uh, and that is private vice leads to public virtue. Uh, I'm often reminded of his famous quotation, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. It's that kind of statement, though, taken alone, that uh, I think gives free market libertarian principles a bad name because when you talk about self-interest, everyone is motivated to serve themselves, but what Adam Smith was able to do uh, and and discuss and present through uh, his uh, analogy of the invisible hand and the pin factory uh, is that uh, ultimately those individuals do more to benefit others than themselves. Describe, because we use this frequently, but describe what you mean by the term invisible hand. Where did that come from? Yeah, what, what, does what it mean? Adam Smith, uh, when he, Adam Smith wanted to present uh, and, and, and in his Wealth of Nations, uh, the view that that free trade will benefit a society, uh, in contrast to the time which was a working principle, is mercantilism. That is, nations were, were 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 restricting trade. And Adam Smith's major contribution uh, that uh, resulted in a transformation in economic thought is that by taking these barriers down, breaking down these barriers, and allowing trade to move freely, it would benefit all nations. And the reason for that is because of specialization. If you could trade those nations that are better at producing certain kinds of goods and resources uh, versus another nation that can specialize in other goods, they can trade, and as a result, they can use their comparative advantage to produce more goods for everyone. And the analogy he used was the the pin factory. When if if one person tries to uh, to uh, uh, through some process make a pin, it would take uh, perhaps a lifetime or a year to do that. Whereas if you have specialization, one person producing the steel or the metal versus the technology or the uh, uh, the tools uh, that are necessary to put the pin together, you can produce thousands and thousands of pins and each pin would be would would vir- have virtually no cost uh, to it whereas that one person who would have to take uh, or, or make a pin over the course of the year would take uh, w- would obviously be precious and more more dear and more expensive uh, prohibitively expensive so so the idea here is that through specialization and through free trade uh, the idea is that the free market works as if 
It's an invisible hand. You don't see it. Uh, There's nothing there that, that, that one can see how the free market works, but it's through this idea that I want to produce more, uh, and uh, you know, it goes back to that butcher, baker uh, example that I just spoke of, uh, that they're, not doing, they're doing it in their self-interest, but they are led as if there's an invisible hand working to produce public welfare and public good. You're n- you're not telling me that incentives matter, are you, Dr. Jim Doty? <laughs> it's all about incentives. That's that's what's uh, that's that's what makes the uh, the free market work so well. Uh, it's it's interesting. There was a recent dialogue in the Wall Street Journal about uh, uh, about capitalism, about free markets, and uh, the, the, there were some that were arguing that free markets have to be erected, have to be. Uh, uh, have to be, uh, government has to uh, build this kind of system, and there's nothing further from the truth. You don't need a government. It, it happens as a result of people who are incentivized to work for themselves, for their families, especially, and for their communities. But in doing so, uh, they are incentivized to work hard and produce goods, and that, of course, uh, leads to uh, a public welfare. And this is this notion again: the invisible hand, private vice leads to public virtue. Indeed so. And so what would the product look like, Dr. Doty, if in fact the government were manufacturing our iPhones or our computers or our automobiles? Uh, How good do you think they would be and what would the cost be? (laughs) Well, it would be like going back to the pin factory. They'd assign one person to produce one pin a year and have all kinds of bureaucratic rules and regulations on how to do that, none of which would work. And uh, uh, the proof is in the pudding, of course. Uh, uh, look at the former Eastern Bloc, uh, look at the Soviet Union, look at Cuba, look at North Korea, look at the uh, classic example, I think, is East, East, former East Berlin and Eastern Germany. Uh, here, are the, the same people, the same culture, same kind of uh, background, uh, education, and so on. And you have one free market system versus a totalitarian status state system where the government is con- in control of production. And look at what happened. It's because of the lack of incentives, mainly uh, the lack of incentives in a uh, uh, public or government control system versus a free market. When you think about, and you mentioned it before, Jim, it's a great example. Uh, Milton Friedman used it in his classic uh, television series, Free to Choose, in in addition to his book, uh, Free to Choose, and that is, think of a pencil and all of the things that are necessary to to, uh, do something as simple as a pencil. uh, pencil. I'm not thinking of an automobile or building a home or anything else, but just take a pencil, the lead, the wood, the the, the paint on the outside, uh, the eraser, all of the elements that are necessary. And when you think about where all of these things are produced in different countries, and then they all come together in a finished product, and again, the cost of that pencil is, is virtually zero. And it's because people along the production process were incentivized to produce different things, and there was no overt government control telling them to do it, but they were doing it because of this invisible hand, this, this, this guy that uh, there's somebody out there that will pay for that 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 wood or that lead or that pencil uh, and at the end of the day and 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 millions and millions of decisions are being made by individuals not by public bodies not by committees uh, not by edict uh, 
And when you compare the results of those two systems, uh, just look at the nations that adopt one policy versus the other. And, uh, and, and I would just hope that those young people who are drawn to a Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism or whatever they want to call it can, can see how uh, uh, socialism doesn't work, but but to see that it's it would be prudent to look at history and see the contrast, the comparison between those nations that adopt one policy versus another. You were trained by Dr. Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago in economics, and and I can tell you, Jim, that. Two of the proudest moments of my life. One time I was running then as a Republican in 1998 for Congress, and Milton Friedman gave me a check for $1,000 to for my campaign. I almost literally wow, didn't cash that, the check. That says a lot but, uh, because uh, Professor Friedman uh, would not do that unless he really believes in the candidate and that candidate's ideals and principles. Well, it made it made me proud. I actually took a photograph of the of that, cashed it, but framed the photograph. And the other was that on the first book I ever wrote, "Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It," a judicial indictment of the war on drugs. Uh, I only asked six people to endorse the book. One of them was Milton Friedman, and he endorsed my book. And I thought my my parents would never believe this that anything I would write, he would agree with. But but he's just a wonderful person to take another good person. And and there are so many ways of expressing this or defining it. But John Stossel is another kind of hero of mine. And he said, we have in the free enterprise system that double thank you moment. In other words, I am the seller. Your money means more to me than this product because I've manufactured quite a few of them. So I thank you for buying my product. And then you have the customer who in effect values the product more than the dollars that he's paying. So they both say thank you at that exchange. That's a pretty good way of describing it as well. Thank you so yeah, as Milton Friedman would say, that that customer, that, that client, uh, either for a service or product, uh, that's a vote. That's a vote in favor of one good versus another, and that's the idea of again incentives. Uh, you're incentivized to produce the very best product you can because you are after those dollar votes, uh, and that's why the free market, the invisible hand, works as well as it does. There's another way of addressing this as well. You talk about tariffs, but it's it's pretty apparent that people don't tend to shoot their customers, that if you're trading with someone, you're benefiting from that, or you're not likely to go to war with them. It's just another Absolutely. way of... Absolutely. Uh, exactly. In, in fact, if you look at m- many of the... Uh, Many of the conflicts in the past, you'll find that they're, they, they, they were preceded by uh, restrictive trade ordinances, and, uh, and, 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 and it's that kind of restriction that cut off these connections, these commercial connections that led to uh, cooperation between nations and nation-states. I ask people, and and Dr. Doty, I'd ask you, that uh, if you're interested in knowing where you stand politically, go to the website isidewith.com, www.isidewith.com, and take that test, and and it will respond to you, digest your information. It's private, but it'll tell you, you know, are you a Democrat, you're liberal, you're conservative, you're libertarian, you're anarchist, whatever. Have you ever taken that, uh, that test, Dr. Doty? No, I haven't, but uh, thank you for the tip. I'd like to yeah, do that. I recommend it to I, you. I hope I pass. 
Well, you'll you'll pass no matter what it is. It's, it's non-judgmental, but but it's it's really pretty interesting. There's, there's one other thing, and that is, uh, I think there's a feeling that libertarian ideals, uh, and it's it's. It, Absolutely incorrect that uh, libertarians and are anarchists and and advocate no government. Adam Smith would be the first person to point out there is a role, a limited role for government and national defense, providing uh, property rights, a judicial system, uh, and even even uh, a government getting involved in those areas where there are externalities like pollution and uh, and, and and there's a public cost being po- imposed on society. So there is a role for government, and that means that libertarians, I believe, need to work and and, and articulate clearly and convincingly that libertarian philosophy will lead to policies that are solutions that are practical, effective, uh, responsible. And I would urge your readers to, uh, and I'll say because I don't think you would, to uh, take a look at your new book, Two Paragraphs for Liberty, which is just a wonderful book uh, in terms of Presenting ideals uh, and ideas in a, in a lucid, concise way to get an overview of how uh, one who places the primary value on individual liberty, that that value ultimately leads to strategies and, 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 and solutions to the problems that we are uh, challenged by today. Well, thank you, Jim, and particularly you did me the honor of endorsing that book, and, and thank you for your comments here. Uh, it's, it's, it's so important that we are able to discuss anything, and in my book, if I could follow up, I basically contrast, compare what the private sector would do uh, as opposed to what government would do, and guess who comes out ahead? And, and one example I use, and I think my numbers are correct, think mosquito nets. People look at me like, what are you talking about? But even now, in mostly many countries in Africa, they have malaria, and it's pretty well documented and shown that for every mosquito net you can get on the ground to protect people from mosquitoes when they're asleep, that you're going to save about one life for every 10 mosquito nets. And it costs the government something on the order of $11.50 per mosquito net on the ground, but it costs private foundations about a quarter of that, maybe about 2 or $3 per mosquito net. And, and that's just another vivid example. And you talked about also, well, what is the function of government and libertarians believe in our constitution? And it's listed. Look at Article 1, Section 8, uh, where it just delineates, yes, a judiciary, a military, that sort of thing, police power. Uh, but uh, government doesn't, you can go through the Constitution in vain and find where the government should be involved with health care or education, things like that. I assume that you would go back to Article 1, Section 8 as well, Dr. Jim Doty. Yes, I would. Uh, and I would remind everyone, uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, that I include in my book, The Market Economy, uh, is uh, by uh, John Stuart Mill, who wrote On Liberty. But he stated, the, the strongest of all arguments against the interference of the public with purely personal conduct is that when it does, when the government does interfere, the odds are that it interferes wrongly and in the wrong place. 
Well, and to follow up on that, because I think, again, it was Milton Friedman that said, why should you have people making economic decisions when they don't get punished for making bad decisions? And if you're in politics, if you're, you're making economic decisions, you're not making them for economic reasons, you're making them for, for political reasons. And you don't get hurt when what you're talking about doesn't work. Such as, let's talk about rent control, because that's imposed by politicians. Uh, violating Milton Friedman's rule that we should judge our our uh, it, our tools by by the results in our projects by the results instead of their their good expectations but talk about rent control why is it good thing why is it not a good thing economist Dr. Doty well i think that's a, a great example to illuminate the idea or the thought you just articulated jim and that is uh, the difference between uh, a government mandate and allowing the free market to work. Uh, in the case of uh, free market capitalism, if there are no regulations and, and overt restrictions that inhibit uh, builders from from building, what would happen is if rents increase, uh, and, and, and as a result, uh, as rents increase, the return on an investment in property will therefore increase. Capital will be drawn to that uh, activity. Investors uh, will build more apartments, will build more homes, will provide that kind of good when the returns are high. That's the signal. That's the signal of the, the uh, invisible hand. When government interferes with that and puts a cap on rental, if that cap is really effective, that is below market levels, all of a sudden there's no longer that incentive for capital to be drawn to that activity. That's why socialistic systems don't work well. While it sounds good in principle, let's keep rents low, let's make it possible for lower income people to afford housing, it doesn't work because when you put a mandate like that, there's no incentive on the part of the people providing the good to move capital, allocate scarce resources to those activities that are greatest in demand. That's the beauty of the free market system. And through incentives, people are voting on what they want. But the free market will only respond if there are these signals that are out there, like higher returns, to move capital to those areas where there's the greatest need. And again, the reason you see economies in general, uh, free market economies, much more efficient, providing many more goods and services, a higher standard of living than controlled systems like the former Soviet system, the Eastern Bloc, and the current communist states of Cuba, North Korea, is because... There's private property that's protected, and there are these signals that the free market can can is is able to uh, to alert the uh, capitalists and investors to to move capital and resources to the areas where not they are. They're not doing the dictating. It's people through their dollar votes. Uh, they're voting for what they want, what services they want. But you need a free market for the market to respond as efficiently as possible. 
Well, you mentioned the, the moving of capital. In effect, if you ha- are limiting their return on investment, they're going to move their capital to something else. I'm going to turn my apartment building into what? Condominiums, because I, I, that way I can I'd get my value. Or turn it into a parking lot if I can make more exactly. money with my investment. Exactly. That, that, exactly. So it, and and the, the, the greatest problem, that's what you do in your book, Jim. You point out that when you let's look at real solutions to problems, and that is, is, it is a real issue now. How can lower-income people afford to live in a home, uh, afford an, a new home, uh, the purchase of a home so they could be part of the American pie or afford a, uh, or occupy or live in an affordable apartment? The way that can be done is providing more apartments, no, more homes. What the government has done is to restrict housing through regulation, uh, supporting NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard arguments to downzone and make it less likely for the market to respond. <clears throat> What's ironic, truly ironic, is that for the last 20 or 30 years, 40, 50 years, the government has advocated those policies. Now, all of a sudden, like rent control measures, now they're finding, hey, there's a homeless problem out there. We have to do something about it. So now they're trying to force cities to downzone, uh, I'm sorry, to zone so that they could allow for more density. So they're trying to reverse the, the very uh, problem that they created in the first place. And that's simply true. We can come back and talk about 2008 with the the housing, the uh, bank crisis as well. I think it was caused by Freddie Mac and uh, Fannie Mae. But uh, exactly, we'll, we have to take People our, our break for the, the moment. Great recession, but, uh, the uh, the deepest recession we had since the Great Depression of the 30s. Talking about the two, uh, 2007 to 2009 recession would not have happened if it weren't for public agency, quasi public agencies like Freddie uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Uh, that uh, uh, created a situation where uh, bonds were created that uh, the public perceived as guaranteed, and uh, they were, in a sense, worthless bonds. But people bought them, even though they realized they were risky, because of a government guarantee. And it was that that exacerbated uh, and and led to the depth of of that recession. And it almost put the government of Iceland out of business because they trusted yeah. us. They bought a lot of those bonds, and they almost became bankrupt. But we're going to have to take take a short break here. But before I do that, I talked to you about free to choose. I talked about uh, Milton Friedman. There's another hero of mine, and he's on our line here as our guest, Dr. James L. Doty, who, with Dwight Lee, by the way, wrote this book he just mentioned, The Market Economy, A Reader. This is a Bible. It was published by Oxford University Press back in 1991, but it really is an uh, insightful book. Uh, Thank you for that contribution, and uh, we'll talk more about how the government makes a mess of things and the private sector makes it work after these messages. Please stay tuned. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. 
our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We are Americans You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit judgejimgray.com. That's judgejimgray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. And you just heard again the the theme of our show, All Rise, which actually comes from my musical, Americans All, again, meant to mentor our high school kids, our junior high school children. It's been been well received. If you'd like to hear the music or even see the DVD, go to judgejimgray.com and you'll be able to, to see that. But my wife has asked me, to uh, ask our, our guest a very serious question. Actually, it's a silly question. So, Dr. Doty, witness if you were, in fact, riding at full tilt on a rhinoceros, and on your right is a complete drop-off, on your left there is a zebra walk, running the same speed as yours, uh, ahead of you is a giraffe that you're not able to overtake, and behind you is a lion that looks ferocious and is running at the same speed. What do you do to get away from this dangerous situation? I know that's a critical issue, but the answer, of course, well, since is... Since I'm a marathoner, I'd hop off the rhinoceros <laughs> and try to outpace... Uh, up well, <laughs> I, I can understand, but my answer would be, when the merry-go-round stops, get off. <laughs> and so then you run. Can thank, <laughs> you can thank my wife for that one, but, but we are here. One thing that you touched upon, with, with so many people are being, in effect, misled today by socialistic promises, by, oh... I have this student debt. The government should forgive that debt. And what you're really doing is you're rewarding people for bad decisions. Uh, if, in fact, you get all of this debt and you're not, the, you're not paying it right away, what happens? Well, the prices go up because cost is not so much of a factor. And if you do this, you are literally punishing people who are financially responsible. You know, those, those students that would, would take out some small loans or would work to work their way through college and they'd graduate without debt. Okay, are you going to reimburse them oh no one's talking about doing that so you're rewarding bad conduct and it's just it's all human nature uh you, you can't you can't step in and do that for any reason it doesn't work i assume that i've convinced and, and you. it also distorts the price of tuition anything that distorts the price means that the free market signal to those dollar voters and to the individuals who are producing the good or service is distorted and is not as effective as it otherwise would be of course, and, and that just that simply happens. If if I were to go to a doctor and say, well, you know, doc, I've got a knee problem, and he'd look at me and say, well, you know, do you want an MRI? What's going to go through my mind? Well, let's see. At the moment, I have Anthem Blue Cross. I've got Medicare. It's going to probably cost me something like twenty-five dollars in copays. So sure, why not? But if the doctor would say, Jim. You, I have a, you have a knee problem. Do you want an MRI? And I were paying for it. What am I going to ask? Well, how much is going to cost, and what will we? Sh- what will it show me? If you ask that word question today, 
the price is not a factor. So the, even the doctors don't know how much it would cost. So, Great example. That's, a, again, a distortion of the price signal. And that sure. is why we have so many issues relating to health care. Do you ever notice that uh, when people complain about the kinds of products or services that are provided, uh, they're either too expensive or the quality is so low, rarely is it a free market service or product. It's always one where the public has, the government has interfered and has distorted the price mechanism, has either subsidized it or put in bureaucratic regulations that uh, ultimately uh, interfere with providing goods and services of optimal quality. Absolutely. In fact, I've I've heard this, and I believe it to be true, that when Mao Zedong was, was running China, uh, he declared, he, he said, the sparrows in our in our are eating so many of our crops before we can harvest them. We're going to declare war on sparrows, and they did, of course, by decree. And then what happened is they had an infestation of insects like you'd never seen before, and of course, millions of people died in famine. You have the government interfering, not responsible for making bad decisions. It's it's pretty much yeah. the same all the way around. Yeah. Uh, so right. we're, we were talking the invis- earlier about goes back to the invisible hand only works efficiently if there's a price signal that's not distorted by some public agency or government. Indeed. We were talking before the break about... And a great example of that is the minimum wage, which in terms of do-gooder kind of mentality, it sounds like, what a wonderful policy. Let's put in a minimum wage so uh, those people with lower skills or especially young people who may need this funding to, to fund their education, everybody is worth some basic minimum level. Sounds great. Sounds compassionate. Uh, it sounds like we care for people. But in fact, it's a policy like that that hurts more the very people it's designed to help. I, I would say 95% of all economists, there's a consensus, and that is uh, minimum wage destroys jobs. Uh, I think the, uh, as an econometrician, uh, I've seen studies, we've done studies that show roughly that a 10% increase in the minimum wage dis- destroys 1% to 2% of youth jobs. Uh, and more than that, it creates incentives on the part of uh, those employers, those owners, to uh, to provide capital uh, to, uh, to to displace those workers. Uh, so again, uh, it re- it reduces the number of jobs and it, it it actually hurts the very people that the policy, the government policy, was designed to help. It's not unlike. Uh, it's analogous to the discussion we just had on rent controls. Yes, indeed. In fact, if you want a flaming example of that, you go into now many McDonald's, and instead of ordering your your hamburger from a person, you're actually using a computer screen. That that person is gone, and because you priced him, him herself out of existence. And, and the the other thing too, I mean, it's heartless. How can you climb the economic ladder unless you can get on the first step? Is the way I would discuss exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly, Jim. We're just, yeah. we're just in real uh, trouble it, with that. There was a uh, 2004 National Bureau of Economic Research study. It's not a conservative think tank. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, actually a liberal uh, group of economists who work and are, are well thought of and highly regarded. And they found that as people reach their late 20s, they work less and earn less than those that were subject to minimum wage uh, longer uh, had 
have they been exposed as teenagers to a high minimum wage? So here's a, a, a study from a distinguished organization that shows that those people uh, who were sub- subjected to high minimum wage didn't have the opportunities that you just spoke of, Jim. They didn't have the, that opportunity to be at the early rung of that ladder to move up, move up that ladder to, uh, to uh, uh, whatever higher career path there might be. Well, and to start showing reliability, responsibility, and in fact, uh, I heard the maximum one time, and I believe it, that you get hired for skills, but you get fired for attitude. Uh, and if you don't learn that, that showing up on time, being consistent, getting along with people, and you, you, can, you can't do that unless you get that first job. That, I, I hate to yeah. say this, You need that Jim, first but, opportunity, uh, and, 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 and it's that kind of responsibility that leads to other opportunities and, and, and wages that are certainly above minimum wage. But again, uh, a minimum wage will, will, will stifle those uh, opportunities for advancement. I say that it's much more effective for society to have 100 work people working at ten dollars an hour than 65 people working at fifteen dollars an hour. That that it's just yeah. it just really is harmful. Now to change the subject a little bit because because time is fleeting, I'm going to have to invite you back for a third time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> many many highly placed people in our society, including me, believe that the national government's debt is the largest security threat to our country. Now, that's big-time stuff. What do you believe about that? Do you agree? And if you do, how can we bring this deficit under control? Yeah, and, and the way I look at it, Jim, it's not debt. It's almost like a, a family or a corporation. It's not the debt level. It's debt as a percentage or proportion of net worth or the assets or the size of the entity you're talking about. So when I, when I look at government debt, which now is roughly equal to one year's uh, uh, GDP, gross domestic product, it's around $23, $22 trillion is our national debt. And that's, that's the ratio. You look at the fact that our national debt is $23 trillion, and it's, it's roughly 100% of this nation's annual G, current annual GDP. Uh, about 10 years ago, it was 60%. So in 10 years, from maybe a little longer, 2007 to 2019, I'm using late 2019 data, it's gone from roughly 60% to 100%. It's that kind of growth that is the danger. And the reason it's a danger is be, many, many would argue it's not a danger because the government is simply paying interest to its citizens. So it's just, a, it, it's just an inflow and an outflow. Uh, what they don't realize is much of this debt is held abroad. Uh, to give you an example, over the course of the last year, we incurred, uh, we added to our national debt, that, that $22 trillion I was talking about, we added uh, roughly $1 trillion to that debt this last year. That means that the government had to borrow those funds. How do they borrow those funds? They issue bonds. That's what short-term, long-term bonds are. The government will just issue more bonds. They sell them to the public. The government pays for those bonds that yield interest by paying a trillion dollars. The problem is that increasingly more and more of those bonds are being acquired by foreign holders, uh, foreign owners of that debt. Uh, and, and over the last year, 
foreign debt, that is U.S. government debt to foreigners, uh, was uh, increased by $551 billion. That is more than 50% of the total deficit now is funded by foreign investors. The danger there, there, there are a couple of problems with that. Not only do we now have to pay interest that absorbs an increasing share of the federal government's budget to pay foreigners. You're not paying it to your own citizens, but paying it to foreigners. The other thing, it could have a significant impact on the value of the dollar. In other words, we will be now dependent on what these foreign investors do. And that's a threat to our security, as I see it. Well, I agree. Take it a little different step, though. I understand the Chinese government, like you were saying, owns a lot of our debt, loans our bonds, etc. But isn't there a, a time at which, if in fact they were to disrupt our economy, they'd lose a whole bunch of money? I mean, if we would have inflation hugely here, the value of their dollars in debt would go down. Is that some form of a deterrent? Yeah, so they're, or not? Not, they're not going to be incentivized to hurt the U.S. government that way. But here's a potential problem. We, there, there now is about, of that $22 trillion of debt, roughly $8 trillion of that now is held by uh, foreign investors. Now, those foreign investors are not going to have necessarily uh, an axe to grind against the U.S. government. All they're doing is looking at global returns and saying, how much does the U.S. pay in interest versus other nations, like like Germany or uh, the, European, the countries in the European community or Great Britain or Japan or even China? And they look at those returns. Right now, right now, you look at those European industrialized nations, and you look at the bond rates they're paying, they're virtually zero, and in the case of Japan and Ger Germany, actually negative. As a result, these investors are buying up, sopping up this government debt, helping keep our interest rates low. The reason mortgage rates are as low as they are, the reason long-term rates are as low as they are, is because we're getting this government support. Now, if in the future that flips and all of a sudden there are other nations that are willing and able to pay a higher interest rate, all of a sudden that support, that those, that, that those bonds they were acquiring, uh, when, if that demand for U.S. bonds diminishes, all of a sudden we've been feeding ourselves on those investors buying up these bonds. Uh, and, and as a result, they have, they have subsidized our government deficit. If all of a sudden they say, I'm not going to do this anymore, again, not because they have an axe to grind or some kind of thing they want to do against the U.S. government for some uh, uh, political reason or, or, or uh, national reason, but simply because the returns are higher somewhere else, all of a sudden they're not going to have a demand for those bonds. And what will happen is that bond prices will drop, which means that interest rates will go through the roof. Our economy will, no question, uh, be moved into a recession. Can you imagine if uh, long-term, if mortgage rates go up from three and a half percent, let's say to six percent, uh, what would happen? What would happen uh, to uh, to business investment if all of a sudden uh, long-term rates uh, increased 200, 300 basis points, a recession would occur. In other words, we are more dependent on global investment flows uh, as a result of incurring these, uh, these uh, deficits. 
we say on this show, all rise, that if we were to employ libertarian values, that we would all rise together. And if we don't, we can sink. And that's what Dr. Jim Doty is saying, that one of the strong libertarian values is responsibility, both financial and social, at all levels of society, certainly individual, group, corporate, but also, hear ye, hear ye, governmental. And we're seeing irresponsibility today with regard to this deficit, because uh, our politicians, in effect, the system dictates. They don't care about the future. They just care about the next election. So they continue to spend this money and give away all this free stuff and, and kick the can down the road. But who is it that's going to be responsible? Basically, it's going to fall on our children. It's going to fall on the unborn even. Talk about taxation without representation. It's going to harm them. And it's irresponsible for us to keep doing this. Uh, it, it just It is, in many ways, the biggest security threat to our country, like Dr. Doty is saying. And, boy, I sure agree with it. But speaking about uh, deficits. You know, I learned a lot, Jim, from um, mentors along the way, uh, many entrepreneurs. And one of my heroes here in Orange County was a person by the name of John Crane, who had a wonderful uh, uh, RV manufacturing facility. He built Fleetwoods that manufactured housing uh, as well, and I was privileged to serve on his corporate board. And he had a principle, and that is to keep debt levels as low as possible. And the reason for that, he said, is that we're in a very cyclical industry. It was responsible responsible enough to his shareholders to realize that's very cyclical. And the next recession that occurs, I know that there will be businesses out there that are uh, so in debt that they're not going to survive that recession. And that will provide us an opportunity to buy up these companies uh, and make them part of Fleetwood. We'll be the survivors in those tough days. But to be in that kind of situation means you have to be responsible enough to see how, is your, how does your debt level compare to your, your capacity to, to fund that debt. Hear ye, hear ye. That's a universal truth. True with individuals, true with groups, true with companies, and certainly true with governments. But but uh, speaking about the deficits then, Jim Doty, uh, before we run out of time, what are your thoughts about tariffs and, and the tariff situation right now that we're engaged with with China? What What is the benefit or non-benefit of tariffs between governments? Well, as I say, as I point out earlier, wealth of nations was uh, Adam Smith's magnum opus, and the Bible of capitalism was really uh, an attack against the uh, economic ruling principle of the day, mercantilism, which was put up restrictive trade and try to accumulate as much gold as possible. And Adam Smith's uh, uh, transformation of that kind of thought is that no, open up trade, to let uh, countries. Uh, produce goods that they're best at producing because there are gains from from free trade uh, and obviously tariffs uh, uh, and that kind of regulation inhibit free trade. I'll give you an example. Uh, the, uh, the recent trade war with China last year, we uh, calculated Anderson Center for Economic Research at Chapman, uh, well, we didn't, we didn't calculate this. It's a known fact that our exports and imports to China that flew through, uh, that, that went through, uh, uh, that were processed through California dropped from 178 billion to 153 billion, a drop of 25 billion dollars. We've estimated that, that decline of 25 billion dollars in trade reduced jobs in many areas that are related to moving those goods and services to, to market both getting imported goods 
distributed to the rest of the nation and taking our exports and getting them and moving them to Pacific Rim nations. Uh, so we lost uh, transportation and warehousing jobs, legal pro- jobs, uh, uh, business services, uh, financial community was hit, and our estimate was a drop, uh, a loss of uh, that $25 billion drop in trade resulted in a loss of, in California, 40,000 jobs. And, it's, and we believe it was the principal reason that California's job growth, dec- relative to other states, dropped about 0.2% more than other states, and that's exactly this, our estimate of 40,000 jobs. Now, with that said, uh, Adam Smith outlined all of the reasons why free trade is good and tariffs are bad, but he had one exception, one exception, and that is if governmental leaders can use tariffs to reduce tariffs in the future, that is, use it as a tool to bring about free trade, there is an argument uh, uh, that can be said to defend those tariffs. So, in terms of what uh, uh, President Trump is doing and, and the tough dealings with China, if at the end of the day that trade war results in lower regulation, lower tariffs, freer trade, arguably it was a good thing. The, uh, the, 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 whether that's happening or not, it's too early to say. Right now, tariffs are still higher than they were before this trade war started. But if as a result of this, these negotiations, uh, tariffs are brought down lower with China, which remains to be seen, I personally am doubtful, but if it can be done, uh, it may have a long-term beneficial result. Well, and indeed, the way I would phrase it is the only good thing about tariffs is threatening tariffs in order to have the other side lower tariffs, but uh, exactly. to impose that's them. Exactly, that's exactly right. Then, it's all about what, if that can be done. And Adam Smith argued that that is uh, that's uh, one thing that could be said in defense of tariffs. But indeed. right now, if you look at. Uh, the current agreement, maybe it'll happen in stage two, but uh, the the first iteration of this uh, this uh, uh, truce in the trade war, uh, tariffs are still higher than they were before this whole war started. Well, let's go back to the Constitution. Re- remember that document? Uh, the, our founders were brilliant in so many ways, but one of them was that they prohibited the individual states from putting up trade restrictions, tariffs, among themselves or between themselves. Can you imagine if we had had tariffs between Virginia and North Carolina or California and Arizona? Imagine the the stifling it would have had for our economy. It's the same thing now nationwide and and worldwide. I think that's a great example. If you'll recall, the Articles of Confederation, which was our ruling document before the Constitution, uh, after the Revolutionary War, uh, did not uh, restrict uh, such uh, regulation and such uh, uh, state wa- state control power to uh, to uh, have tariffs and it was one of the fundamental flaws in the articles of confederation that led to the constitution and free trade and that was the whole idea behind the European community. Uh, let's take these various warring states, World War I, well, history, thousand years, 2,000 years of war uh, among, these, uh, among the nations in Europe. The idea was now after World War II, let's move to a unified, a United States of Europe. That was the dream, the European community. And there, they did 
remove tariffs between nations. What happened, however, was that the the, the bureaucratic mechanism of the cure, uh, European community put in so many restrictions, so many bureaucratic guidelines and rules and procedures that it has led to, well, for example, Brexit. We can't take this anymore. We're out of this. You know, Jim, when I heard that the European Union, uh, through Brussels, their bureaucrats, were telling the English what kind of tea kettles they could use, and they started fiddling around with their tea, I knew it was just a question of time. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we don't uh, have much time hopefully left. Hopefully it's a movement in a direction, to, to, in a direction towards uh, freer markets. But, again, that remains to be seen. The bureaucracy in Brussels is stifling uh, uh, economic growth, and it's lead to, led to a status system in Europe. And that's why uh, th- those bonds in, in Germany and in France and Italy are, are, are pay, uh, paying such low rates, uh, again, then leading to this other issue. <laughs> Uh, that the U.S. is facing. Actually, it's a short-term benefit, and that is we're drawing all the capital from investors in our bonds. The problem with that is it's it's sending a false signal to the U.S. that uh, that deficits don't matter. People think, well, look at inflation is down. Uh, everybody's buying these bonds. It's not quite, interest rates are relatively low. Uh, so every every the the, the the punch bowl is out there. The party is is going. On there's there are no problems. When push comes to shove, though, when those investors begin to change their mind, that's when the price uh, that's when then the price will be paid for that of kind course. of irresponsibility on the part of our government. Indeed, so we just have a short time remaining, uh, Doctor Doty. You took Chapman College from that sleepy little college to a vibrant Chapman University, and you have spoken to a number of students. Uh, in when when you talk with them about their careers, what do you tell them? Uh, I I I you to think that you are certainly one of the most successful people I know, and you can pass along that wisdom to your students. What do you tell them when they come into Chapman about pursuing a career? Uh, what advice do you give them? Well, that's a very timely question. I had my first uh, class in econometrics for the spring semester on Wednesday, and I, I talked a bit about that, and I related to them uh, why I think econometrics is such an exciting, uh, uh, vibrant field of study. Uh, and, and, and what I pointed out was when I was uh, – in under, when I was an undergraduate, uh, working to pay my tuition, I was working as a book bookkeeper for a company, and uh, didn't really like the job, but it paid a salary, and like we said before, a stepping stone to other kinds of jobs. In my case, I had an opportunity to do an econometric analysis as a result of a course I took in econometrics at uh, University of Illinois at Chicago, and uh, that study led to a job in, in forecasting in that company, higher salary, my own office, name my own hours. And I loved what I was doing. I was passionate. All of a sudden, bookkeeping, which I found boring, was, 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 uh, was changed to something I was doing that, that, that I wanted to do, that I enjoyed, that I found exciting. So my message to the students was, I'm not sure it's going to be econometrics. I hope it might be, and this course hopefully will show you how exciting a field of inquiry it is. But the key is... Do what I did and find what it is that you love and then do that as a career because if you do, it's not a job, it's a hobby.
Indeed so. Well, you have heard it here, folks, uh, and I'm going to have to invite Dr. Jim Doty back for a third time because he's so <laughs> enlightening. He really is appreciated. Uh, he should be charging money for this conversation, but uh, he is public-minded. He, You walk around his Chapman University like I did just recently with him, and he encourages all the students to call him Jim. He's just down-to-earth, noble, blessed and certainly insightful. So there you have it. I mean, the hour keeps coming to a close too quickly, but we know life is complicated. But if you listen to, I mean, econometrics, incentives, the free market system, not unbridled, but but with the, the government uh, overseeing to make sure that we don't have, for example, uh, child uh, wealth child work laws and that sort of thing. I don't want eight-year-old children to be working in coal mines, but but it is a balance and, and pursuing economic issues, pursuing libertarian values, we literally will all rise together, just like Chapman University has been all rising for the years of, of Dr. Jim Doty's tenure. So on behalf of us all, Dr. Jim, thank you for what you do. You're just an inspiration to us all. Uh, your book, The Market Economy, a reader, is in fact a Bible as well and uh, we just appreciate this. So tune in again next week. We'll be back with you with another exciting guest, another bunch of issues to discuss. We all know that, in fact, we should be able to openly discuss anything. Uh, We're not doing that very well today, but we should, employing these libertarian values. So again, I hope you tune in again to next week. You can also pick up this issue again or back on demand uh, with Dr. Doty previously or, or today and listen to it two or three times to get that, that value of his insights. In the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying thank you and life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.